Thanks. How's it going? Good. It is good to be together this morning. It's such a privilege, it says, a church to get to share life together. The church is family. We are a spiritual family. And, and so just these words that we just uh, were able to, to share um, with these young families, what a significant thing it is uh, to be able to be a part of raising a child uh, in the church. It, it does take, some people say it takes a village, we say it takes a church uh, to do that. And so thanks just for being a part of that. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I would love to have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Luke 16. Uh, this morning we're looking at another story of Jesus, a parable. And uh, if you haven't sort of figured this out yet, Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. Uh, he, he tells the most amazing stories called parables, uh, and he does it often. The way he teaches um, is in parable a lot of times. And parables are, are kind of troubling sometimes because they, they have a way of kind of getting inside of us. Uh, they have a way of kind of disturbing and distorting the way we see reality, which we think is reality, but they disturb us, disorient us, so that we will learn to see the world a brand new way, a way that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is here. It is uh, among you. He says the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus. Uh, he teaches us to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. He promises us that when he returns in his, uh, in his glory, that the kingdom will be fully uh, established, fully realized. And so all of our life as uh, people who have said yes to Jesus is wrapped up in this thing called the kingdom of God, where we're giving our lives to uh, allowing God to reign in us and in our relationships and in the community around us. And so um, Jesus is teaching these stories called parables, uh, and they teach us about the kingdom of God. So Luke chapter 16, this this, I'm excited about this. This is, a, this is maybe the craziest story Jesus ever told. So Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. Uh, we're going to kind of blank out the screen. We'll, we'll kind of use that a little bit later. But I'd love to just have you, you can either follow along in your Bibles if you want, or you can just sit and imagine yourself sitting at the feet of Jesus with the other disciples as he tells this story um, about the shrewd manager and the merciful master. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know, and then he kind of has this idea of verse 4. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. Verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons or 900 measures of olive oil. He replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Cut it in half. And then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, you take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. 
For the people of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Jesus says to us, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Have a great day. Go and do likewise. Um, It's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Be shrewd for the kingdom. Um, I do want to make a t-shirt that says, be shrewd for the kingdom. Um, Oh, we lost our image there. Kind of anticlimactic a little bit. It'll, It'll come up eventually, maybe. Um, I had a picture of Dwight Schrute. Be shrewd for the kingdom was the deal. Yeah, whatever. It's, uh, never mind. So, I had this really cool moment planned in my mind, but it didn't work so well. So, uh, like, what do you do with this story Jesus tells? Like, he, he gives us some commentary at the end, verses 8 and 9 are, are kind of commentary, but it is a crazy, crazy story. Um, and so, in order for us to kind of get into it and to kind of understand, I think, what Jesus said, and if you read commentaries, which I would highly recommend, like, we have the Holy Spirit with us. We read the Bible with the Holy Spirit. We read it with the church to help interpret, but we also read it with the church of history. And so commentaries are really helpful to, to hear what have other people said about this? How have they heard God speaking to them about this? So you can check that out. Uh, I'll be honest that I read some commentaries on this that were just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like you think it says... A, so uh, I am going to humbly submit this, uh, this sort of vision of what Jesus is saying. And it's been influenced a lot by this guy named Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey was a missionary in Lebanon for a couple of decades. He wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, which I highly recommend. Uh, it, is a, it is a phenomenal resource. So let's unpack this parable a little bit. The first thing we have to understand about the world Jesus lived in and some of the differences to our world today is the difference between a guilt-based culture which we live in and an honor-shame culture that Jesus lived in. How many of you have ever been um, to a, a country that isn't considered in the West, the global West, a country that isn't in Europe, that isn't in um, the Americas, a country in the West, so in Africa or Asia? How many of you have ever been to a country like that, then you have been in an honor-shame culture. Honor-shame cultures are very different from our Western cultures. Western culture tends to run on a sort of legal system that keeps people living in the boundaries of morality. Uh, We tend to be really individual. Uh, So, like, in a Western culture, like here and now, like, you are your own free person. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. You can make decisions, and those decisions are going to affect you primarily. And we tend to see the world through an individual perspective. Honor-shame cultures, like the world Jesus lived in, are very different. They're very communal. They're very sort of um, communal. They're interpersonal. And every decision you make has direct impacts on your family and your community. Uh, And so, in an honor-shame culture, it's almost like you have a social credit score. Everybody know, you know your credit score? Like, you can go online and you can look up your credit score and and have a picture of how how well you're doing at at managing credit. In an honor-shame culture, it's like you have a social credit score. The best thing you can do is have people think well of you and honor yourself and your family. And you do that by 
acting rightly. And so uh, the most valuable asset you have in an honor-shame culture is what the community thinks about you. The most detrimental thing you can do in an honor-shame culture is what? Is to do something to bring shame on yourself or your family. And so um, we have to understand that's the world Jesus lived in. Uh, It's a world, uh, our youth group that's going to Thailand this summer, it's a world you're going to enter. It's an honor-shame culture. It's very, very different. And even communicating the gospel, we in the West, we tend to talk about the gospel as God's alleviation of guilt, while in in honor-shame cultures, the, the gospel message is a message of shame, of God taking away shame and bestowing honor on people. It's all throughout the scriptures. We just don't, don't tend to see it. So, let's go to the parable. Um, in verse 1, Jesus starts the story, and he, he introduces us to two characters. The first character is this rich man, this, this, this guy who owns, um, apparently, we're not told how much, but he owns huge plots of land, is essentially what the story's about. You have a rich landowner, and this landowner has so much land that he hires a manager, the second character, this manager, who runs his accounts. This guy has the keys to the kingdom. I mean, he's got, uh, most likely he lives in company housing. Uh, he drives a company car. He's got the company credit card. He is the guy who runs the show for the owner. Uh, what Again, uh, it's not all that different from big agriculture that happens around us, is you have people who own maybe large plots of land, but they don't farm it themselves. They rent it out to other farmers. So that's the picture here. This wealthy landowner has huge plots of land, and he rents it out to people who grow wheat and who have olive groves and maybe other things too. And they negotiate a price. The manager does for him. uh, Negotiates a price on how much they're going to charge them to use their land to grow their their crops. So that's the, the bit of the story. The manager is completely entrusted with the owner's stuff. The owner really doesn't know what is happening in the day-to-day transactions of his farm land. Everything's entrusted to the, to the manager. Now, in this story, Jesus says, there's an accusation floating around the community that his manager, who he has chosen, who he has hired, who he has entrusted, is squandering his stuff, is, um, is wasting it. The word wasting here in verse 1, uh, do we lose our screen? You'll just have to imagine. Um, the word wasting in verse 1 is the same word as squandered in the parable of the prodigal son. It's the same word. He's squandering the master's stuff. And so um, what, what is that going to do to the owner's social reputation? In an honor-shame culture, the guy he's entrusted is not trustworthy. So what's it going to do to the owner? It's going to bring shame on him, right? And his family and everything. He made a bad decision. He trusted a guy who's not trustworthy. So, verse 2, that's the thing. There's this accusation. Verse 2 sets up the confrontation. So imagine this confrontation. You've got the guy who owns the stuff and the guy who runs the stuff. And the owner comes to him with his accusation in his ears and he looks at his manager, who he has entrusted, and he's asked this question, which is absolutely brilliant. He says, what is this I hear about you? Isn't that a great question? What he doesn't do is go through the litany of things that he's heard from the community. He asks this open-ended question, says, so what is this I hear about you? What does that do? It creates all sorts of space for him to get new information from his corrupt manager. 
He doesn't, he, he lets this open space because what, what's going to happen is this manager kind of panics and he says, uh, well, here's the deal. I've been like, you know, using your card for this thing and I've been paying, you know, all these bills that were my own bills. I'm sorry. He's going to get all sorts of new information. So he asks this brilliant open-ended question. What is this I hear about you? Now the manager, what does he do? He's too smart for that. He's too shrewd. He doesn't give him new information. What does he do? He hangs his head and he's silent. There, there it is. Um, he just hangs his head and he's silent. And, and so his silence does what? Well, first of all, it's incriminating. He doesn't try to defend himself because he knows his excuses aren't going to work on the master, on the owner. But his silence is also incriminating. It, it, it just exposes his own guilt. He, he's guilty. He's been doing this. He's squandering it. So the master says, well, Here's the deal. I need you to turn in the account books and you're fired. You, you can't run my operation anymore. Now, we can miss this, but there is so much mercy in this text. The owner at this moment in the confrontation, he would have had the right. And as people are hearing this story rolling off the lips of Jesus in real time, they would have heard this setup of the confrontation. And what they would have expected was the owner to look at his, his manager and give him a backhanded slap, bringing shame on him. And he would have told his guards to collect him and to throw him into prison. He would have had the right as the owner. Um, he would have had the right to gather his family if he had one and sell them as slaves to pay off his debt. He could have done that. He had the power to do that, but he didn't. What he does is he says, turn in the account books because you're, you're relieved of your duties. He strips him of his authority. There's judgment, but there's also mercy. Do you hear that? You get a glimpse of the owner's character, that he is merciful to the core. So, verse 3. So now you imagine this manager who's just been... You know, he's been exposed now, and, and the, 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 the gig is up, and so he's now walking back. You imagine him walking back to his office, and he gets to the place where he, he, he runs the operation, and he picks up his account books. He picks up the ledger, and he's getting ready to turn them in. And he's asking all sorts of questions. He's like, so what am I going to do with my life, with my future? I'm you know, I'm too scrawny to dig. Like, I can't farm. I can't do manual labor. I'm not going to bow my back out in the field. And I'm, I'm too proud to beg. Not like the, was it the temptations? I ain't too proud to beg. Um, and uh, so he's like, what, what am I going to do with my future? And all of a sudden, he has this brilliant idea. He looks down at his hands, and he's still holding the accounts. Now, his authority has been taken away, but nobody else knows it yet. And he knows the power that he still has in his hands is quickly disappearing. That in just a couple hours or maybe a day, as soon as he can get the accounts together, he's going to have to turn them in and he is out on his own. So he comes up with this plan that he says the goal is so that when I'm finished, people will welcome me into their home. Somebody's going to give me a job. I'm going to have a place to land. So Here's what he does. He absolutely, absolutely brilliant. He opens the account books. He sends a servant to call in some of the master's renters. He doesn't go after them, running after them like he's desperate. He pretends like nothing has changed. He's not going to go to them. He's going to call them to come to him. So he summons them, says, hey, come, I want to talk to you. I want to make a deal. The, the renter sits down 
And he says, he opens the account book, and he says, so how much do you owe the master? And he says, a thousand measures of olive oil. A thousand measures of olive oil. Quick. You take the pen, make the change. I realize this is, a, is, this is not a pen on here. But, but make the change and cut it in half. Take it 450. That debt reduction was about three years' worth of wages for the average worker. It's a huge debt reduction. Just cut it in half. You make the change in your handwriting. It's brilliant, right? You make the change. I'm not going to make it. You make the change. So this guy who, who just has this huge debt reduction, three years of wages, has just been alleviated from him. Can you, can you guess what he's feeling at this moment? He has no idea anything has changed. The owner has just, in his mind, the owner has just been the most generous man alive to him. Has this taken this huge debt off of him? Does this make sense? Are we track? I realize like the details of this are, are kind of hard to track with. But he, he gets this amazing deal that he doesn't know is not legitimate. The second guy comes in. He says, how much do you owe my master? Hands him, hands him the book. He says, uh, I owe him, uh, what, what, was the, what was the amount on this one? It was uh, bushels of wheat. And he says, um, oh, a thousand, a thousand bushels of wheat. Again, a huge, massive debt. And he says, you, take the account books, take 20% off, make it 800. And he has just, again, about three years of wages alleviated from his debt load to the master. If this is you, so this afternoon, I want to ask how many of you still have like student loans or some other loans. So what happens when Sally Mae calls you up this afternoon? Like, and they say, hey, here's the deal. Like, we've just been like going through our accounts and you've been so faithful, paying your your debt's on time, and you've been such a good client, we're going to take half off your student loan. I know you owe, I know you owe like $40,000. We're just going to make it twenty grand, and just take your time on paying it. When your bank, your mor- who holds your mortgage, when they call you later today, and they say, yeah, I, I know you're on like a 30-year note, and you got like, you know, you got 15 years to go, or, or you're, you're, maybe you're just getting started. Let's just make it 15 years. Just, just cut it in half. Keep paying what you're paying. We'll just cut the debt in half. How are you going to feel? Anybody? What is the first thing you're going to do when you get off that phone call? You're going to have a party. You're going to tell somebody. Who are you going to tell? Your family, your friends. You are going to make phone calls. You are going to post it on social media. You are going to have a party in the honor of the person who has alleviated your debt. The image here is that these two guys who have just received this gracious offer of debt reduction, they go out and they start celebrating in the community, this close, tightly knit community. You'll never believe what this landlord did for us. He just eliminated half of our debt, 20% of our debt. And like you can imagine, they're having a party, a parade in this guy's honor. Right? He, they are celebrating how generous he is. They are singing for he's a jolly good fellow. And the whole community is, is celebrating this. So now, now, this weasel of a manager gets his account books together and with the like, sort of face that says the cat has eaten the canary, goes to him and surrenders the account books. And what happens when the owner opens the account books and he starts reviewing them and he sees this change that's made in ink that's barely dry and there, it's in the handwriting of his closest associates. All of a sudden, he has two choices. Choice number one, 
He can go back and he can say, I fired this guy. Nothing he has done. This deal is not legally binding. You still owe the full amount. Imagine the party that's going on in the community right now. Like, <laughs> screeching halt. And what has happened to the social capital that this owner has just received from his radical generosity? It's in the tank, right? It, and so do you see what the, the manager has done? Has painted him into a pretty impossible situation. He can, he can go back and he can say, no, 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 this is null and void. You still owe the full amount, but it is going to kill his social capital. Or he can look at him and say, you little weasel. And he can sort of slap his leg and say, you got me. Good for you. You're still fired. <laughs> and essentially, that's what he does. Like in the story, that's what he says. He commends him. Like you had one card left to play and you played it perfectly. And he, uh, you know, as people begin to hear about this story as it unfolds, even though he's fired, they're going, you can imagine the community is going to be like, like, I'm not sure that I want that guy working for the competition. Like, what if we bring him onto our team? We're going to like keep a very close eye on him, but the dude is, he's smart. He's got it going on. This is uh, the theory of Abraham Lincoln. He wanted his, his enemies he wanted them on his team so he could supervise them because he knew what they were capable of. He wanted to keep them close. And so that's sort of what this manager, he bet the farm, bet the farm on the owner's mercy. He had experienced mercy that he didn't get thrown in prison and he bets the farm on the owner's mercy that I bet you that he, he's going to be merciful to me again. And he was. And he was. And Jesus, that's the story. Right? So Jesus goes on and he gives some commentary. Verse 8 says, After he's commended, not for his dishonesty, he's not commended for his dishonesty, he's, he's commended because he was shrewd. He acted shrewdly. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what is Jesus saying in this passage. A couple, a couple of thoughts, just wrapping all of this up. One is we have this glimpse of like sin and the corruptive power of sin. When this manager was caught, I mean he was caught red-handed, standing accused. He had two options. He could have repented. He could have just said, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, please forgive me. I'm going to change or he could have just, he could have started making lots of excuses, which he knows the excuses aren't going to work on this, man, on this owner. Or he can go out and do what he did and just make the sin worse. And it exposes kind of the, the power and the insidiousness of sin. That it just kind of tends to, to keep getting bigger. And, and the sin in our life, it keeps like involving more and more people and getting more and more elaborate. So Jesus isn't teaching us to be deceptive. Like Howard said, go and steal somebody's scrap metal, right? Um, that was a joke. Um, you know, he's, he's teaching us, like the, the power, I think, of sin is that we all like have this choice when we are sort of exposed, when the purity and the goodness and the mercy of the master stands in front of us and says, what, what is this I hear about you? We have this opportunity to throw ourselves on the mercy of the master, trusting that he's more merciful than we ever could have imagined. 
So I think it teaches us that, that, that the, the, the only appropriate response isn't to make excuses, it isn't to try to sort of weasel our way out of it, but it is to throw ourselves on the mercy of God because he is more merciful than we ever could have imagined. But I think that's a sub-point. I think the main point of this is what Jesus says. He says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So the, the word worldly wealth is this word that means injustice or unrighteousness. Injustice or unrighteousness. Use the wealth of injustice or use the wealth of unrighteousness not like the people of the world use it, but use it for eternal value. So do you know if you have your wallet, your purse, whatever, you can sort of hold it in your hands, you can do this later. But do you know that all money is dirty money? It doesn't mean you made it that way. It doesn't mean you were a part of injustice or unrighteousness. But there's a pretty good chance that every dollar that passes through our accounts or our fingers has in some way been used for injustice or unrighteousness. Right? It's been used to exploit people. It's been used to manipulate people. Um, This is the way the world works. It's been used for maybe all sorts of sinful activities. You don't know, but there's a pretty good chance that unless it just came off the press, it has been used for some sort of injustice or unrighteousness. So what do you do with it? Jesus says, hey, people in this world, people who live with no sort of eternal vision, they use the money really shrewdly to make their lives comfortable, to sort of make, um, ensure their immediate future is going to be, uh, their needs are going to be met. But he doesn't tell us, because money is dirty, wash your hands of it, don't have anything to do with it, like just renounce all sort of claims to wealth, unless God calls you to do that. Um, It's not something that Jesus calls us to do in this passage. He says, be shrewd about how you use it. Leverage the money that you have, not like people of this world do, for just these immediate needs and, and, and building a life of comfort, but leverage it for eternity. Invest in those things that are close to God's heart because here's the reality. Jesus says when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What is the power that you hold? This manager acted shrewdly because he knew the power that was in his hands was very quickly going to be taken from him. And the same thing is true of every dollar to our names. It's vulnerable. Jesus elsewhere teaches, he says, hey, don't, Don't store for yourself treasures here on earth where it's vulnerable, where it can be stolen, where it can, you know, sort of lose its value. Store up treasures in heaven where it's not vulnerable. We, if we're wise, if we're going to be shrewd in the kingdom of God, we're going to realize that whatever power it is we hold, whatever money we hold in our hands, however we've gotten it, it is quickly passing away. And at some point, We're going to lose it. Death is going to take it from us. We will carry nothing into eternity from our work that we can carry in our hands. What are we going to take with us into eternity? Only that which we have done in the name of our Lord. And only those things that are investing in His kingdom because His kingdom is eternal. To understand, to be shrewd in the kingdom of God is to say, my money, it is passing away. And so if I'm going to use it, I'm going to use it to build the kingdom of God. How am I going to do that? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is renounce greed. That every time I feel greed rising up inside of me, I'm going to give something away. You know, that's really the only way to break the power of greed is to give stuff away, to be generous. Now, here's the deal. Americans, we Americans, we live 
in a lifestyle that is four times the global average. Four times the global average. That's the average American lifestyle, middle class. Four times the global average, and yet we spend 97% of our money on ourselves. 97 cents out of every dollar across, across the U.S. gets spent on ourselves. That means we give 3% of our money away in generosity. Uh, part of what it means to be shrewd about the way we manage our money is to break that cycle. That, that includes Christians. Like, right? I mean, there's just, that's just the American population. Is to say, what if, what if we do something radical and we live lives of radical generosity and we leverage every dollar we have? It doesn't mean that we can't have comfortable things. It doesn't mean we can't invest for the future. All of those things are fine. But are we, are we breaking the cycle of greed and are we leveraging all of the money that we have that is quickly passing away for the kingdom of God? How do we do that? Well, what would happen... What would happen if we invested in the 65 million refugees in the world today? You think that's close to the heart of God? That there are people who are living, we call them camps. Many of them are more like cages. And, and they're a bit out of sight. And a number like 65 million seems like uh, it's kind of hard to comprehend. There are 65 million people who are displaced today because of violence or persecution or famine or some reason like that. What, what if we as a people of God said, you know what, we're going to see them and hear them and we're going, to, we're going to leverage our resources to love them and to welcome them? What if we did that? Um, what would happen? We have, a, we have somebody who's organizing, uh, Howard made an announcement of this, uh, refugees who have come here fleeing persecution like in the Democratic Republic of Congo, who've come to Wichita and they don't have anything, and so we're going to do a baby shower for them. Like, what, what would happen if, if the people of God were the first group to say, hey, we love you in Jesus' name? You think God cares about that? I think he does. Um, I had somebody talk to me between services and just kind of casually uh, mentioned that they're, they're super heartbroken because they have been loving this kid in India for the last nine years or so through Compassion International. And many of you do this. You sponsor children around the world in Compassion International. And India has just cut off um, compassion in their country. And so you've got like 140,000 kids who are left without the support and churches that are left without the support of Compassion International. And they were heartbroken because they love this young guy. He's, he's 16, and they have been writing letters to him, and they just wrote their last letter to him. And it's incredibly painful to sort of lose that relationship as it, it has been. But you know what I hear in that? I hear people who are investing in the kingdom of God. I have this image as she was talking about this of like, what's going to happen someday when, when they pass away, when this young guy passes away, and, and they meet in eternity, and they get to welcome each other into their eternal dwellings. Is that a beautiful picture? We get to invest in people. We get to invest in justice. We get to invest in things that God cares about. We get to break the cycles of greed, and many of you are doing this in such beautiful ways. In fact, I talked to a guy this last week who was kind of talking about a, a journeyer who told God, you know, as he's doing his taxes, his accountant looked at him and said, you need to prepare for an audit. Yes. Doesn't that sound like fun? You need to prepare for an audit. And he says, why? He says, well, because the amount of money you make, which is quite a bit, 
and the amount of money you give away, it's unheard of. People just don't do that. And so they're going to, it's going to raise lots of questions. What if we were the kind of people who raised all sorts of questions because of our radical generosity that everything we have that is passing through our fingers, we were leveraging for the kingdom of God. God, we hear your message today. We hear the message of your mercy. We hear the message, God, that, that these things that we, we, we tend to put so much value in and wrap up our identity in, the stuff we have, the power that we have, the money that we hold, we realize, God, that it is nothing but mist, that it is disappearing, that it is, it is quickly moving through our fingertips. So God, we want to be shrewd. Um, we want to be shrewd in the kingdom of God. We want to take what is entrusted to us here and now, and we want to use it to care about things that you care about desperately. God, we want to be people who raise all sorts of questions in the world so when people ask us, why do you live this way? We can tell them about the good news of Jesus. God, I pray that you would just well up inside of us uh, a generous spirit that, that lives and that leverages everything for your coming kingdom into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. I you guys to stand and let's just lift up his name this morning.
Lord Jesus, this morning as we prepare to um, give, God, um, as we heard this morning, God, um, may what has uh, been given be used to further your kingdom, God. May we invest in your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. This morning as we end, we just want to spend time celebrating and and, uh, just exclaiming um, how great our God is.
morning for worshiping together. Such a beautiful sound. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. Have a great week.